You're listening to Give Me the Bible with Len. Today's program is entitled No More. Hello, my radio friends. Welcome to today's program. I hope this will help you as you endeavour to be influenced by the Word of God, the Bible. Have you ever heard the song, Hit the Road, Jack? Hit the Road, Jack is a song written by the rhythm and blues artist Percy Mayfield and it was first recorded in 1960. The song became famous after it was recorded by the blind singer-songwriter, pianist Ray Charles with the Ray Letts vocalist Margie Hendrix and eventually became one of Charles' signature songs. Charles' recording hit number one for two weeks on the Billboard Hot 100, beginning on Monday, October 9, 1961. Hit the Road Jack won a Grammy Award for the Best Rhythm and Blues Recording. The chorus of the song goes, Hit the Road Jack, and don't you come back no more, no more, no more. Hit the Road Jack, and don't you come back no more. That phrase, no more, appears many times in the Bible. Recorded in John chapter 8 is the record of an incident that occurred one day in the courts of the temple at Jerusalem. There were lots of people there and Jesus sat down to teach them. Then something happened, and I'll read to you from the Bible from verse 3. That's John chapter 8 verse 3. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman taken in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go and sin no more. There are many things that we can learn from this short account. Some questioners have asked, if the woman was taken in the act of adultery, she must have been with a man. Where was the man? He should have been brought to Jesus as well. There is a high possibility that the man was some notable person 
perhaps even a Pharisee, and they were guarding his reputation. Sadly, the Pharisees and teachers of the law picked on the easy target and brought only the woman. What did Jesus write in the dirt? The Bible doesn't say, but it has been suggested that he wrote some of the secret sins committed by the accusers standing before him. As they observed what he wrote, they quietly slipped away, hoping that what they had been hiding would not be revealed. Even the crowd Jesus had been teaching disappeared also, perhaps hoping their personal sins would not be revealed. Finally, just Jesus and the woman were left. No doubt the woman had been fearful and probably ashamed that her secret had come out into the open. She was fully expecting to be stoned to death, as that was the punishment in the Jewish society back then for committing adultery. Then Jesus, oh, so wisely and beautifully, asked, Was there no one left who would condemn, that is, denounce her? She replied, No one, sir. And Jesus then replied that he was not going to condemn her either. But, he added, that she needed to forsake that way of life and sin no more. Why was there no one prepared to throw the first stone when Jesus gave the permission to do so? The simple fact is that there was no one in the group who was sinless. And that situation still exists today. The Apostle Paul asserts in Romans 3.23, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Therefore, none of us are in a position to judge anyone else, because we all are in the same boat. That is, we are all sinners and need God's grace. As part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus had something to say about judging others. We'll find it in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. He said, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, this is an important issue. To call someone a stupid fool, for example, is pronouncing, pronouncing rather judgment on them. However, to point out that that person has been acting foolishly is another matter. This is showing them that their action or attitude is wrong and not that they are totally wrong. We're permitted to point out that when someone has been doing the wrong thing, if it is wrong according to God's law or civil law, the person involved judges themselves. When you point out their mistake, you take on the role as advisor rather than judge. But we are in no position to say to someone, 
you are worthless and will go to hell or something like that. Such a statement is like a judge giving a sentence. That we must not do. There is hope for any sinner. As Jesus came to save everyone, although only a minority are prepared to accept God's gracious offer. On another occasion in Jerusalem, it was the Sabbath. It was probably in the afternoon because it was Jesus' custom to go to church in the morning. Luke chapter 4 verse 16 reiterates that Jesus went to the synagogue on Sabbath to worship. The verse says, As his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. You know, Jesus is to be our supreme example. He kept God's law, and he kept the seventh-day Sabbath according to the fourth commandment. If the seventh-day Sabbath was to be rescinded at the cross, why did Jesus continue to worship on the Sabbath day? Sunday worship is not commanded, nor condoned in the Bible. It's an institution brought in by man against the express command of God. I don't know how people who claim to live according to the Bible can, with clear conscience, have as their holy day another day contrary to what God commanded. Anyhow, that Sabbath at Jerusalem Jesus and probably his disciples with him were near the pool of Bethesda. This was an artesian pool, and there was a building consisting of five arched verandas around it. Hundreds of sick people were there, waiting for a stirring of the water. The people believed that an angel was responsible for the moving of the water, and furthermore, they believed that whoever got into the water first when it bubbled and moved would be healed of his or her malady. Amongst all those hopeful of being healed was a man who had been there for 38 years. He was probably crippled and was pitiful to look at. I'll read to you from John chapter 5, verses 6 to 9, what happened next. Jesus said to the man, Would you like to be whole, to be whole, that is, cured? The impotent man answered, Sir, I have no man or nobody when the water is troubled to put me in the pool. But while I am coming, someone else steps in before me. Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made whole, took up his bed, which was kind of a mattress, and walked. Now this was big news. Here was a man who had been healed after 38 years. Probably most people in Jerusalem knew about him. Probably many had given him money. But here he was now, all hale and hearty, walking about unaided. 
The Pharisees and other Jews heard about the miraculous healing and saw him walking home carrying his bed. They immediately tackled him. Verse 10 says, The Jews therefore said to him who was cured, It is not lawful for you to carry your bed on the Sabbath. He answered them and said, He who made me whole said to me, Take up your bed and walk. Instead of rejoicing that the man was now healed, the Jews were more concerned that he was breaking one of the many rules they had invented about keeping the Sabbath. The man did not know who Jesus was and who it was who had healed him. Later, at the temple, Jesus saw the man and said to him, You have been made whole. Sin no more, lest a worse thing happen to you. Sin no more. The Bible does not say what the man had done in the past to become crippled so that he couldn't move properly. Maybe it was chronic arthritis or muscular dystrophy. We just don't know. There was a belief back then that any malady or misfortune that came upon anyone was the result of them committing a bad sin. However, Jesus knew all things, yet he also ascribed the man's problems to his moral lifestyle and he told him to sin no more. Now we're going to have a little break and then I'm going to raise a very important issue.
The fact that Jesus told the man to sin no more raises an important issue. Some people believe that we have no control over whether or not we will be saved. One group calls this particular redemption, although others simply claim that Christ does it all. He saves, he empowers, he does what is necessary for a person to be saved, and the individual has nothing to do. But in both the situation with the woman taken in adultery and the, with the crippled man, Jesus said, Go and sin no more. My friends, we have choices to make regarding our own salvation. We have to make decisions to resist evil. We have to make day-to-day -day choices to serve the Lord. Salvation is full and free, but each of us has a part to play. James chapter 4 verse 7 sums up our responsibility. He said, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. It is a fallacy that Jesus does it all. We are promised power to live successful godly lives, but we have to make the choices every moment of every day. And, but James goes on in verse 8, and he says, Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. And then in verse 10, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. In each of these verses you will notice that we as individuals are required to take action. Submit, resist, draw near to God, cleanse your hands and your actions, purify your hearts and humble yourselves. The instruction Jesus gave to the adulteress and the cripple was, Go and sin no more. And I guess we all know that is not that simple. First, you need to have the motivation not to sin. That motivation will be most likely, firstly, an appreciation for what the Lord has done for you. Secondly, a desire to be pure. And thirdly, a desire to please the Lord. Sin can be like a drug or a well-entrenched habit. It can be hard to break. So how can we stop sinning in such circumstances? In Acts chapter 7 verse 8 is a statement by Jesus just prior to his, his return to heaven. He said, But you will receive power when the Holy Ghost comes on you, and you will be my witnesses. Power? Yes, power from on high is available to help us in our time of need. And we have a need to break the sin cycle in our own lives. Remember the words of Jesus who said, Ask, and it shall be given to you. That's from Matthew 7, 7. Sin is burdensome. It weighs you down. 
You have to be on the alert that you don't get found out. Sin costs. It's not free. There is always a price to pay for sinning. Sin is a curse that has plagued mankind since Adam and Eve sinned by disobeying God in the beginning of earth's history. But help is available from God to help us. But are you aware that a time is coming when there will be no more sin? And that's when God's people physically dwell with him. Then sin will be a thing of the past. And Revelation chapter 22 verse 3 points out that it says no longer will there be any curse, of course the curse is sin. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, that's the new Jerusalem, and his servants will serve him. Sin is the curse that will no longer exist. Now does this mean that the saints, that's God-saved people, will not be capable of sinning? I don't believe that, because God has given mankind free will. If that free will is taken away, then the saints would be nothing more than robots. But because God's people have in their earthly lives chosen to serve God instead of Satan, the originator of sin, their choice, even in paradise, will be to serve God. Now here's another point. Imagine we are in the new earth. God's dwelling will be with us, as is stated in Revelation 21.3. Everything will be abundant and wonderful. Why don't you read Revelation chapter, chapter 21, and you will get a speck of an idea how wonderful it will be. Would there be any reason for anyone to steal, for example? Well, there's no reason to steal. Because everything is there in abundance. There'd be no need to hoard up gold because gold is so abundant. Would there be any reason to covet what others have? Well, absolutely not. You would have access to everything yourself, so there'd be no reason to want more. Would there be any reason to have a so-called holy image to worship? No, of course not. God will be there in person. It would be entirely ridiculous to worship an image when you have the real thing, that's God, to worship. So would you want to kill someone? Well, I doubt that because everyone will be so happy no one would want to seek revenge on anyone else. Satan and his angels are, by this time, totally and irrevocably destroyed. So there's no tempter to misguide people to have evil desires. Besides having all we need, we all would have such a great appreciation for having been given eternal life and such gratitude to God we would count it a great honour to be in God's presence. God's kingdom of glory will be what many, including me, 
have been waiting and preparing for. Revelation chapter 21 verses 3 to 7 tells us about what has been prepared for us in keeping with Jesus' promise in John 14, 1 to 3. I'm going to read from Revelation now. And it says, And I, John the prophet, heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making all things new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It's done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Friends, the no mores of the Bible teach us some very important lessons. The injunctions to go and sin no more teach that we are to live holy lives. The no mores of Revelation teach us that as the result of living holy lives, God gives an inheritance of eternal life of not just living forever, ever, but living in his presence and living in peace and harmony without the difficulties as experienced in this fractured world. That's something worth working, worth working toward, don't you think? Well... I hope you join me in wanting to live a life that is pleasing to God, where the ultimate reward will be eternal happiness. Until next time then, this is Len, signing off, and until then I wish you the benefits of a no more sin life. <laughs> 